song be thou my vision thank you very much and your brother take your bibles please if you will and turn to ephesians chapter 4 tonight as we mentioned this morning we reverse the order usually preaching through ephesians on sunday morning and first samuel on sunday night and we've changed it this day preached in first samuel this morning ephesians 4 tonight and i do not yet know next sunday what i'm going to do i probably will preach first samuel in the morning and again, Ephesians again next Sunday night, but that is not a promise, all right? So we're finishing up chapter 4 today in the book of Ephesians. As we go back, to, we went back to our study of Ephesians last Sunday, again after our messages on Thanksgiving and Christmas messages and New Year's message and sickness and so forth. And we saw, we looked at verse 31 last time. Let's read verse 30 and then 31. Verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Well, how can we keep from grieving God's spirit, making God's spirit very sorrowful, very, very sad? Uh, anytime uh, we're not filled with the spirit, anytime we walk in our flesh, anytime we do something out of the will of God or opposed to the word of God, of course, uh, we have a problem in grieving God's spirit. And one way that we can keep from grieving God's spirit would be to obey the commands that follow. Uh, some people believe that these three verses really are all tied together. Some say, no, really, they're just kind of each verse by itself with a message. But last time, last week, we looked at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And we said the word to be put away is basically like weighing an anchor. It's lifting up an anchor and getting it out of there. So putting, bringing it on board so your ship can sail. So the word here to, to put away is to, is to lift up and to take away. Lift up and put away bitterness. Lift up and put away anger. Lift up and put away wrath. 
lift up and put away clamor and evil speaking and anything that in any way would be evil or wicked or bad, the meaning there of malice. And yet God says now, listen, I'm not done with my commands as far as telling you something that you need to do. He gives us these what we call, say, negative commands, but he follows them up in verse 32 with three positive commands. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There are three positive things that we're supposed to do. Now, some people uh, would say, well, I think the negative is most important. I don't know why anybody would ever say that. Somebody else comes along and says, no, I think that the negative is that we should, you know, play that down a little bit. And, you know, it's the positive because if you got the positive right, then you won't do the negative. So you get these big arguments about what's most important, the, the negative attitudes or the positive attitudes. And, frankly, it's not worth discussing. They're all important. Every command is important, whether it's on the negative side or the positive side. The negative side, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And then the positive side, do this, do this. They're, they're all the same as far as their importance goes. They all, they all go together. They're all God's plan. They're all God's commands. They're God's will for us. And if we fail there, we, we violate the word of God. Now, some people do believe, especially, and I think many good men believe, that 31 and 32 do go together. And that what God is saying is here, listen, there are some things you need to stop doing. And in the place of these wrongful things, these negative things, if you think about the meaning of the words of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice, I mean, they are really just the opposites of those things that we find on the positive side, verse 32, being kind to one another and being tenderhearted and being forgiving one another. Surely we can see a contrast there in the types of these things, that, that what they are, what they mean. And of course, and if there's a violation, it would be like you can see, well, if you're not this, then obviously you've got a problem with this. If, you, if this is taken care of, then this is not going to be a problem. So there are many that do believe that they tie together. We just simply might want to look at these three things. First of all, he says, and be ye kind one to another. Now, when we think of the word kind today, a kind person, uh, probably two words would come to the surface. We think of a person being uh, gentle. We think of gentleness can be being in kindness, and that is a part of it. Uh, sometimes we, we think of the word sweet. Well, she's, she's, she's just so sweet. I don't know if we call a guy sweet or not. You know, I don't, wanna, don't call me sweet, please. But anyway, we think of, usually we think of the ladies being sweet, you know, and then the guys being gentle and whatever. It's just that, and people, that, yeah, that's kind of what kindness is all about, just being really a sweet or a gentle person. Well, it does include that, but it's really more than that, because the word kindness, be ye kind one to another. Kindness in, in Greek speaks of, of uh, being gracious, being benevolent, eager to give, being helpful, being useful to someone, that's really all involved in, in kindness. So it's not just this attitude of being gentle and being sweet, so to speak, but there's the, there's the, there's the heart in it that wants to give. There's the heart that wants to meet the needs of the other, and, these, and really that'll tie in with the next one also. But it's being gracious, the meaning itself, being gracious, benevolent, helpful, useful. So we have in our church a benevolent fund. It's kind of a doing good to others fund or helping somebody in need fund. It's a part of our designated giving number 41. Every once in a while, somebody will put, a, say, $200 in the offering and say, uh, would you please put this in a benevolent fund? Somebody in our church that, that has a financial need, and I just want to make sure there's money there to meet that need. So that money is put in num number 41. And are you, if you get a business meeting tonight, there it is, number 41. That's the, uh, the 
the designated giving fund. So the money that's put in there was put in there not to just spend on the lawn or the, or the electricity or something else or pastor's salary. No, the money designated in the 41 for benevolent fund means or the, that fund is just like this is what it's for. And so when there's the need, it's taken out, okay? So this is the idea of being kind one to another. There's a contrast here. The contrast between kindness here would be being harsh or being hard. Uh, bitter, rude, sour, crabby, sharp. We can, I think we can relate to those words. I hope that that doesn't describe any of us or many of us or most of us or some of us even, okay? But that is really the idea when you think of the meaning of kind, being gentle or being sweet, being uh, uh, caring about others, being gracious, benevolent, helpful, useful to someone on the other side. If, they, if that's not you, then probably there's some harshness there. You thought of as being a hard person, a bitter person, rude person, sour, crabby, sharp. And I think you and I know people, that, people are naturally drawn to kind people. That's just the way it is. Uh, people most generally don't like to be around someone who is unkind. I mean, go back to those words I just gave you. I mean, who wants to be around a hard person, a harsh person, a bitter person, a rude person, a sour person, a crabby person, a sharp? You know, that, that's not really, that doesn't attract. But the idea of being kind, being kind, be ye kind one to another, kindness attracts. Kindness is appealing. And therefore, by the way, it encourages friendship and fellowship. It's not hard to be a friend and, and to be a close friend. Somebody that you think of as being a kind person, you're naturally drawn to them. It's easy to establish a friendship with a kind person. It's easy to have fellowship with a kind person. Easier to get along with a kind person than a harsh person, a bitter person, a grouch, a crabby person. Obviously, this is, just makes good sense. And by the way, because that is true, it does enhance, it does encourage friendship, fellowship amongst believers, but it also enhances our testimony to unsaved people. I cannot remember their names of so long ago, but I remember when, when uh, my wife will probably tell me after church tonight, okay, but down there in Florida, we were in Tampa, Florida. We had a missionary couple in our church. Hey, I remember their last name as I'm talking. Won't, won't give it to you. They were missionaries to, I think it was Jamaica, Bahama, somewhere down there, Nassau, missionaries to Nassau. And I remember when, we, when they came to our church for the first time and he preached. I remember that in his message he said, when my wife and I felt the call of the Lord to go to the Bahamas as missionaries, he said, God put in our heart a burden to be so loving and so kind to those people, whatever they were like, that we would win them to Christ with our kindness. That they would be drawn to us. That they wouldn't repel us. That they wouldn't want to push us away. That they wouldn't want to stay away from us. That they, they wouldn't want to be around us because we were, we were unkind people, but we were missionaries for Jesus. He said, we're going we're gonna to win people to the Lord with kindness. And this is not just, you know, that kind of evangelism that as long as we just do good to people, you know, and help people out and give them things and be, be sweet to them, you know, and so forth, loving people, they're just going to come to Christ. This is not that. But what they said was really, was really true, and it's good. We're going to win people to the Lord. 
by loving them and showing God's graciousness to them, God's kindness to them. Christians, Christians really should be known as the kindest people in all the world. The kindest people, Christians. When you think of Jesus Christ, you don't think of somebody who is harsh. You certainly don't think of somebody who is bitter and crabby and grouchy and hard. Now listen, uh, he did a few things that didn't come across as being real kind, as you know. Like, well, like when he cleansed the temple, and you see people running every which way, and tables being tipped over, and animals uh, running, and birds flying, and so forth. But see, that, that's, not, that's not being unkind. And, we, and I put a caution in my notes here. Caution, being kind doesn't mean that we cut corners. Being kind doesn't mean that we refuse to take a stand for God's truth. Just to be thought of as being kind. And this is really important because it is true and it has been down through church history that many times men of God, women too, but men especially as evangelists, preachers or professors in Christian schools or in some type of ministry uh, were thought of as being unkind because they proclaimed the truth. They spoke the truth in love, but it didn't matter how loving they were, how gracious they were, how kind they were. Just the fact that they preached something that was not popular, they were thought of as being unkind. They were considered being unloving. Hey, listen, you know, I'm not 22 years old. You know that I'm pretty close to, of course, but not 22. I've uh, been around for a long time, been around a lot of godly, godly men. Been around a lot of godly men who've gone to be with the Lord. When I think of some of these men, I'll not mention any names. When I think of some of these men, these well-known preachers, they were not talked about oftentimes or thought about as being kind, gracious men. But I knew those men. I was around many of those men. They were some of the most kind gentlemen you could ever imagine being around. And I got thinking one day, you know, why do people have a hard time with him? Why do people talk so negative, so unkind about him? And I think it was because they were willing to take a stand and proclaim God's truth when many, when many men were cutting corners, compromised, and taking the easy way out. I shouldn't, but I will mention just one. I don't worship this man. I love this man. Dr. Bob Jones III. Chancellor of Bob Jones University, Dr. Bob Jones III is one of the most kind, gracious men I have ever known in my life. But even when we were at school, when he was vice president and then the president, there were people, there were a, plot, a lot of people in our country thought he was a very unkind, harsh, cruel man. And it really, I believe it was because of the stand that he took as the president of the school that I was attending. In a day and age in which there were some really big situations in our country that men were arguing about and men were just, I don't want to go into details, but it's like, you know, there were some things that were obviously against the scriptures. I mean, I'll give you one example. When you, when you sprinkle holy water on new converts in an evangelistic crusade, I, would you all agree that's really not a good thing to do? And that's what was going on. Huge evangelistic campaigns all around the world, and one big one in Brazil. And I'm speaking at Dr. Billy Graham at that time. 
and you see pictures of the priest sprinkling holy water on the converts up by the altar, and you're thinking, somebody should say that that's not right, and Dr. Bob III would say that's a wrong thing to do. When you see their crusade in New York and you see a, a cardinal and a bishop on the platform, these are Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops on the platform with Billy Graham and he's complimenting them, somebody could step up and say, that's against the scriptures, that's wrong. But very few people would take that position. It was an unpopular position. And those who said, that is scripturally wrong, we cannot... We cannot, I read the verse this morning in 2 Corinthians, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You cannot join hands with those that are not proclaiming God's truth and don't believe God's truth and say we're working together for Jesus. You can't do that. And they'd have these big rock concerts before the preaching, and Dr. Bob would say, that's wrong. We, we, we're, not, we're not going there. And so three people say, well, he's an unkind person. He's very unkind. No, he wasn't unkind. If I, if I ever could get with you in private and tell you things that Dr. Bob the Jones III just did personally for this undeserving person, you would know why I have a special love for that man. I've seen him do things. He's done things in my life to help me, very personal things. And I'm telling you one thing. There was a gracious kind. There is. He's still alive. He's a gracious, kind believer. But some people don't think of him as being that, and that's a shame. I've been in youth ministries, you know, for many years. been in different churches as youth pastor. And it's been interesting to see young people in a youth group who will gravitate to certain youth leaders. And I've learned through the years that many times teenagers who do not live for Christ, young people in your youth group who have no desire for the word of God, they have no desire to, to grow in the Lord, they have no desire to pray, we, we, we see no indication that they want to read the word of God, that they always want to live on the, on the edge and, and, and be rebellious and do things wrong and break the rules and so forth. I mean, basically what I'm saying, rebels in the youth group, it's always been interesting to me how they gravitate to certain youth leaders and say, well, I really like her, I really like him because they're just, she's just really so kind. And I'm thinking, you know, the reason that you gravitate to her is because she never corrects you. She never tells you you're wrong. She never says, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. Or I'm sorry, but, you know, you, you really shouldn't be wearing that because. Or he's not a good friend for you. Or, and the, and the list goes on, and it's like, okay, those leaders, it didn't matter how kind or private they were. When they truly loved young people, and in privacy and kindness, they would correct them, they would counsel them to please live by God's word. Sometimes they were thought of as not being too kind, didn't want to be around them. But the youth leaders who didn't follow the rules, didn't care about enforcing the rules, didn't want to correct anybody, stop anything, they were, they were the kind ones. So you got to be careful here, but God does say to us, be ye kind one to another. And then he says tenderhearted. By the way, one more thought there. Humility is at the very heart of kindness. A kind person is a humble person. They just go hand in hand together. He says, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. What does it mean to be tender-hearted? Again, it, they kind of over, it overlaps a little bit with kindness, but there's a little difference, little difference here, okay? Being tender, the word in the Greek, the word, the word tender-hearted comes from two Greek words. You would never guess what they are, tender-hearted. Two Greek words. The first one is well. You could probably guess that one, well, tender-hearted. Okay, well. The second Greek word is, are you ready? Spleen, bowels. Do you like that word, bowels? Real nice term, isn't it? 
spleen, bowels, intestines. You say, what? That's the meaning of tenderhearted. Well, spleen, bowels, intestines. You say, where'd that ever come from? Back in Bible time here, Greek culture, people believed that the affections, the emotions, the loves, they all came from our kidneys. They came from our liver. They came from our intestines. Now, what do we say today? I, come on, I love you with, come on, I love you with all my heart. We've heard that. You've said that. Some of you guys said that to seven girls before you actually did love one of them, you know. Don't, let's not go there, please, okay? I should not bring up this topic, as you know, okay? But anyway, you say, I love you with all my heart. You know, I have a heart for you. And in these times, they would say, I love you with all my liver. Doesn't that sound weird? I, honey, I love you. May, look at this diamond. Isn't it beautiful? I, I want you to know I love you with all my kidneys, and I want you to marry me. It's like, really? But they say, I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my kids. I love you with all my liver. It was, it was the bowels. It was the intestines. And that spoke of, combined with that word, well. Uh, scripture, Genesis 43, don't turn to there, please, but Genesis 43, verse 30. It refers to Joseph. That has to do with Joseph in Egypt. As his brothers came to visit him, <laughs> when they brought in his brother Benjamin, listen to this. It says, Joseph, he says, we're, we're told there, what Genesis 43, 30 says, For his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. When he saw his brother Benjamin coming, his bowels did yearn upon his brother. We would say, what is that all about? He would say, his heart was stirred, his heart was moved, his heart was broken, his heart was thrilled. But it's like, oh, this is my brother, my, my brother Benjamin. No, no, that the Bible says his bowels did yearn upon his brother. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26. That's the passage where Solomon was given the wisdom from God above everyone. And one day, there's these two mothers come to see Solomon. They had a problem. They both had a, a baby boy, remember? And one of the babies died, and the other one was still alive. And so both mothers are saying that the dead baby was hers. You know, both of them said, no, this one of this one says, you know, no, this, this is both of them said, this, this is my, this is my baby. The baby that's alive is mine. Now listen, you and I know one of them's telling the truth and one's not telling the truth. Amen? Who's supposed to know? You know what Solomon says? Well, it's, we can take care of that, it's no problem. Who know, who know? Raise your hand. What did Solomon say to do? Somebody. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. You know that story already, huh? That's good. Is that your favorite Bible story? No, okay. Uh, he said, Solomon says, no problem. We can take care of this. Bring me a knife. We'll just cut the baby in half. And we'll give half of the baby to mother number one, half the baby to number two. Number two. Now, the lady whose baby's dead, the mother whose baby's dead, what does she say? <laughs> Great idea. I like that. I can vote for that. Let's go. Now, the mother who knows that that is her baby that is alive, what does she say? No, 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 don't do that. Just give the baby to her. And Solomon says, I know who the real mother is here. Take him home. What does the Bible say? Then spake the woman 
whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Her bowels yearned upon her for her son. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, they both have the phrase, both of these verses have the phrase, bowels of mercy. Not a heart of mercy, bowels of mercy. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Why don't you just go to one with me? Go to the uh, epistle of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, verses 16 and 17. And you know, in First John, we have many verses that, are, that speak of assurance of salvation, birthmarks of a Christian, traits of a true believer. There are at least five in First John. I've preached on this probably 30 years ago now, a long time ago, shortly after I got here, the five birthmarks of a believer in 1 John, because the gospel of John was written primarily to tell us how to be saved, and the gospel of the epistle of 1 John was written to show people who are saved how they can know they're saved, how they can have assured salvation, and one of them is loving for Christian brothers, loving others, verse 16 and 17. Hereby know we, or hereby perceive we. Here's how we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We want to know if God loves us? Does he really love us? Okay, how do you know? This is how we perceive the love that God has for us, because he laid down his life for us. And then he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his, here it is, bowels of compassion. How dwelleth the love of God in him? And the answer is, it doesn't. It's all through the book of 1 John. It's not godlike. It's not godly. It's not a, you can, it's not a, a, a mark of a, a person in whom God's spirit really does live. We, we see somebody in need, but we, we shut up our bowels of compassion. Bowels of compassion. Tenderheartedness is basically having, in, in the New Testament now, the tenderheartedness is really, it's, if there's one word that is linked with more than anything else or that it means the same, it's really basically compassion. We would think of it as love, but it's really compassion. Having a compassionate heart for others. Not being hard-hearted. Not having no heart at all. Not living with a, a what we call a, a no-care attitude. You know, acting like you don't see others that have a need. And if you do notice, then you don't care. It's like, well, maybe somebody else will help them. Maybe they won't. But hey, listen, they probably deserve that. They, they really need that, you know. And they're sure not worth my time. They're not worth me putting any money into and the inconvenience and so forth. But I'd have to go through. Don't really think so. So you kind of just turn your head the other way and, and walk on. Like, you know, if they get help, they're going to have to get it from somebody else. Just a, a hard-heartedness, a lack of compassion. No, it's loving somebody with all of your heart or loving them with your intestines, if you please. But it is a, and it's not just an emotional thing. We know that. A love, true love, true compassion is more than just being emotional about something. 
we don't have time to go to this tonight, but we could read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see the picture of love there and see that it, it does include some things about emotion, but it's not just about emotion. So God says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. And thirdly, he says, forgiving one another. Now, it's the, when a person is tenderhearted, it's the compassion, it's the love that is behind the kindness. And when there is kindness and then when there is tenderheartedness, it will naturally follow that there will also be a forgiving spirit. And so God says, be ye kind one to another. Be tenderhearted, which comes from that kindness. And then he says, be forgiving one another, because that comes when you are kind, when you are tenderhearted, it becomes easy to forgive. But God says, be, be forgiving one another. And he says, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Just the fact that God would tell us to forgive one another must tell us that sometimes Christians can have a problem with each other. You know, Christians aren't perfect people. A Christian can say something to another Christian that they really shouldn't say. A Christian can do something to another Christian that they should never do. And therefore, they, their, their fellowship is hurt. Their friendship is hurt. There's a barrier there. There's a problem there. There's a wall there. And it's going to be there until they do what God says, and that is go seek forgiveness. It's going to be there until the person then forgives the person who comes seeking forgiveness. But Christians can have a problem getting along. I think one of the saddest things is that Christians just can't seem to understand why this Bible can take care of any problem that we have. And I don't like mentioning people's names, but I'm going to mention one tonight. I thank God for Lonnie Lowry. Lonnie Lowry, as you know, is a member of our church for a long time. Lonnie and Karen were good people, folks. I miss them very much. And Lonnie Lowry used to come and talk to me, and he'd say, Pastor, I just don't understand why that family would leave our church. I don't understand why that man would leave our church. I have no idea why that woman would leave this church because of their problem with so-and-so or so-and-so or this or whatever else. He'd say, do we not have in the Bible God's direction for not only how to be saved but how to, how to live as Christians and love others and forgive? He said, this makes no sense to me. I don't understand why people just can't take the same Bible that told them how to be saved to get in the family of God and have brothers and sisters in Christ, why they can't take that same Bible and have all the instruction they need to work out any problem they're having getting along. And I used to hear him say that, and I'd have tears in my eyes thinking, I wish to God every person had that attitude. That is a wonderful biblical attitude. Just taking the word of God and saying it is sufficient to solve whatever difference, whatever problem we're facing. Listen, we don't have to have this irritated and walk away from each other. Why can't we work it out with the scriptures as our guidebook? I thank God for that. The word forgiving here does not mean, it's not the usual word. There are two different Greek words for forgive. Two, maybe more, but there's at least two. This is not the usual word for forgiveness. The usual word forgiveness means to send off or to send away. 
We know, we've, you, you've probably heard that, to, to forgive us, to send off or to send away. God forgives our sins. He sends off our sins. He sends away our sins. How far? He's as far as the east is from the west. This is really not that word here in the Greek. It's a different word. The word here is the word keromitsomai. Have you ever heard that word, keromitsomai? It comes from the word charis. You ever heard about the charismatic movement? I'm not tying it in with forgiveness here, but it's, it comes from that same word, charis. Charis, this is keritsomai. It means grace. It means gift. It means benefit. It means favor. And that is very important to understand this verse. That's the main thing. I want to focus on two main things, and we're done tonight. First of all, keritsomai, grace. It's all about forgiveness here. Dr. Weiss and Kenneth, uh, Kenneth, Dr. Kenneth Weiss and, and Weiss uh, books, uh, Studies in the Greek New Testament. Listen to what he says about this verse. This is Dr. Weiss' definition and explanation of this word, charizomai, uh, forgiving. We should forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. He says, Dr. Weiss says, to do a favor to, to do something agreeable or pleasant to one. To show oneself gracious. I underline that because that's the key. Grace is that word charis, to show oneself gracious. So once again, what does it mean to forgive? And this word, to do a favor for, to do something agreeable or pleasant to one, to show oneself gracious, to be benevolent, to forgive in the sense of treating the offending party graciously. There's that word grace again, or graciously. So what's he saying? How do you summarize this? The forgiveness that God has in mind here when he says to us, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. The forgiveness that is being spoken of here is not, is not just saying, okay, I forgive you. It's not a verbal thing. It can include the verbal thing, but the focus is not on the words, I forgive you. Would you agree with me? It is not hard to say these three words. In fact, let's say them together, okay? I forgive you. Let's do that. Now look at anybody in this auditorium, person, maybe the person who's sitting right next to you. The person right now, you have no problem. Now if you have a problem, you're going to find this pretty hard. You might want to turn your head and look the other way and try this and say, okay, but uh, just pick anybody, anybody you're sitting around and look them straight in the face and just say three words, say, I forgive you. And then that person says to you, I forgive you. Come on, let's try it. I'm, I'm close to Bonnie, so let's go. I forgive you. Come on, let's do this. I forgive you. Hey, listen, my wife just said, I forgive you. That's nice. I just said, I forgive you. You said that to somebody, they said it to you. It's not hard to say, I forgive you. Anybody, you can talk, you can say those three words. And when somebody has wronged you, when somebody's offended you, whatever prompts you, whatever motivates you, whether good motivation or bad motivation, it is not hard to say to somebody, okay, I forgive you. And maybe even say it with a smile. I would hope that you'd at least look at them when you say it. Maybe you feel so badly, truly, you can't even look them in the face. You just have to look down, but you just say, I forgive you. And you don't have to say, if somebody comes to you and their, their head's down, they say, listen, I, I just have something I want to tell you. I know I did this last week, and it's bothered me so much. I, 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 just, just, I just ask you to forgive me. You know, don't look at them and say, well, now look up and tell me that. Look in my face and tell me that, you know. And if they ask you that and, you, and, and, and you're, maybe you're so stunned, you're so surprised, your heart is so broken that you can't even look at them and say, well, I, I accept your apology, I forgive you. So you look down, so you look down and say, listen, hey, it's no problem, it's over, okay, I forgive you. Then don't you say, well, look in my face and tell me that. 
Okay, so it's not the idea, where are your eyes? I'm just saying it is not hard to say verbally, I forgive you. But I think a lot of times people who say, I forgive you, they really don't mean it for whatever reason. They just say it. And then they go on their way, and there's no indication that there was ever a change of attitude, a change of heart. And that is what this verse is all about. It is not just saying, look, I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. But it's the gracious spirit. It's the gracious attitude, attitude that truly does forgive. And is determined by the grace of God. They will forget it in such a way that they will never have a, a negative attitude about that person again regarding that particular thing. It's like it's gone. I, I can't forget that it happened. I know, I know I will want to get it out of my mind. It won't be out of my mind for a while. It may never be out of my mind. But I want it to be. And I forgave. But then it's that now showing the graciousness, the favor. There's the closeness. There's the friendship. There's the doing things with or doing things for that follows that, that really show, hey, listen, even if they never even said it verbally, it's obvious they're forgiven. God says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven. And you know, and God doesn't just tell us in the Bible He forgives us. Think of all of the things. You ever just sat down and tried to make a list of all the things Jesus Christ does for us since He forgave us? We know He forgave us. Look what He does for us. And then finally, in closing, look at this. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Dr. Alford says, here is the greatest argument from God's example that we ought to resemble. Would you turn, please, to Matthew chapter 18? Because there is no way that I can preach this verse, and especially this phrase, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. There is no way that I can think about that verse without thinking about something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Here's the supreme example, the supreme illustration of the forgiveness that we should emulate, then that's God himself. That we are so appreciative, we are so thankful, we are so overwhelmed with a sense of we do not deserve God's forgiveness. But God in his love and God in his grace and God in his mercy, he forgives us. So if God would do that and he forgives us so much so that we're not going to hell. We're not going to scream in hell forever. We're not going to be tortured in hell forever and ever because God in his mercy is being so long-suffering. He chose to willingly forgive us and we don't deserve it. And if that's true, and it is true, then why in the world can't we forgive anybody for anything? Does that make sense? If it does, say amen. Why? I mean, who are we anyway? That we could be forgiven by God for so much that when somebody wrongs us, we say, I'm never forgiving. Nobody should ever expect me to forgive her for that. Never be the same. Can't do that. Are you serious? Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Matthew 18. Beginning at verse 21. 
Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, I've got a question for you. How often shall my brother sin against me? I mean, really, literally sin against me? Does me wrong. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times, and he's really being gracious for that. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's adding a few numbers to what the, what the law said. What was clearly understood at that time, he said, should, should I do it even till like seven times I can forgive the same person for the same wrong? Up till seven times? Jesus said unto him, oh, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. So together, please, 70 times seven equals four 190 times. You know what Jesus is saying here? It's not a matter of, okay, you're counting them and you're writing them down. And now you're at 320, now you're at 365, now you're at 419, now you're at, you know, 480, got a few more here. If you hit that magic 490, done. Now if they sin one more time, that's it. I've obeyed the word of God. That is not the message here. The idea here is you just don't keep count. You don't keep count. No, not until seven times, until 70 times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Mega bucks, 10,000 talents. But as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Look at this, please. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, Lord, can't you see him? Can't you see him there? Can't you just see him kneeling down? He's weeping. He can't even look in his face. He says, Lord, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. What's the Lord going to do with that? The Lord of that servant. Look at this. He was moved with compassion, and he loosed him and forgave him the debt. You got to pay this money. You're going to prison, and you're not. You're not getting out. Your whole family's going to prison until you, you take care of this. He says, "Oh Lord, forgive me, please forgive me. Have compassion upon me. I'll, I'll pay you all." The Lord was moved with compassion. He loosed him. He forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out. Now watch this now, boys and girls. Please look this way. Look at your Bible. Please don't be goofing off, okay? Boys and girls, come on now. Don't distract others. Don't distract the preacher, okay? Don't do that, please, okay? But now the same, this says, but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him how much, folks? Not 10,000 talents now. I mean, this is microscopic. He owed him 100 pence. What did he do? He laid his hands on him. He took him by the throat saying, pay me what thou owest. And his servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, now listen to what he says. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Just about word for word what he said. He owes 10,000 talents and he says those words and, and the master says, you're forgiven, you're free grabs one of his servants, takes him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe me here, these hundred pence. The man says, oh, he falls down. He says, have patience with me. I will pay thee all. How sad he would not. 
He would not, but he went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and they came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that, he had called him, said unto him, Oh, thou wicked servant. Now watch this. I forgave thee all the debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? Now here's the phrase. Even as I had pity on thee. What's the obvious expected answer? Of course, yes. Bow your, bow, bow your heads, please. Close your Bibles, would you? There, there is no better explanation of what our text means than right there. Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, even just like, in the same manner as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. If God, a holy, perfect God who doesn't have a single flaw, if he would graciously, mercifully forgive us of all of our sins, what a shame. How sad, in fact, how wicked, how wrong, how evil, how terrible that there would be anybody who would ever sin against us. And we would say, there's no way I can forgive. I will not. We can see how wrong that is when you think of this story that Jesus gave to illustrate true forgiveness. So we should be forgiving one another just like even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Father, we pray tonight that you will help us to obey these three commands, to be just as serious as obey, about obeying these as the five negative commands. Both are necessary. They're all important. And I pray tonight that we might truly, as people here in this church, that we might in thy sight and therefore in the sight of others. Father, that we might be kind. That we might be tender-hearted, truly compassionate. We might be eager and willing to forgive anyone who seeks forgiveness, who's wronged us. Just like you've forgiven us for which we are so thankful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for just a moment, please? Would you pray tonight, would you pray to our Father about the message that you've heard? About just those three things, how you doing with being kind? How tender-hearted are you tonight? How about this thing of forgiveness? As our pianist plays a verse of a song, it's our invitation to you to do something about what you've heard. So let's, let's just pray silently. And then we'll close. And I'll just step down here in the front like I always do. And if anybody says, Pastor, I just want to come and say something or ask you something or would you have prayer with me? I'd be very happy to do that, okay?
Just before we're seated tonight, let's just sing a verse together, Amazing Grace. Could we sing the first verse? And by the way, you know we're going to have our annual business meeting tonight. You don't have to be a member to stay for our annual business meeting. If you're visiting with us and you want to step out, you're welcome to. We'll sing a song and, and let you slip out. But I, you are invited to come. It'll not be a long meeting. It'll be a good meeting. And I think if you stay, uh, you will be glad you did. But we are going to have a business meeting. But let's just sing together a verse of Amazing Grace together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Twas blind. But now I see. Be seated, if you will, this evening. Constitution says that we should have an annual business meeting at the beginning of the new year. We wanted to have it before tonight. All of you know why we didn't. So what I need to do, first of all, is ask if anybody here, please, somebody make a motion that we would declare our church to be in session for our annual business meeting. We'll ask someone to second that, and we will go from there. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that song be thou my vision thank you very much daniel brother take your bibles please if you will and turn to ephesians chapter 4 tonight as we mentioned this morning we reversed the order usually preaching through ephesians on sunday morning and first samuel on sunday night and we've changed it this day preached in first samuel this morning Ephesians 4 tonight, and I do not yet know next Sunday what I'm going to do. I probably will preach 1 Samuel in the morning and again Ephesians again next Sunday night, but that is not a promise, all right? So we're finishing up chapter 4 today in the book of Ephesians, 
as we go back to, we went back to our study of Ephesians last Sunday, again after our messages on Thanksgiving and Christmas messages and New Year's message and sickness and so forth. And we saw, we looked at verse 31 last time. Let's read verse 30 and then 31. Verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Well, how can we keep from grieving God's spirit, making God's spirit very sorrowful, very, very sad? Uh, anytime uh, we're not filled with the spirit, anytime we walk in our flesh, anytime we do something out of the will of God or opposed to the word of God, of course, uh, we have a problem with grieving God's spirit. And one way that we can keep from grieving God's spirit would be to obey the commands that follow. Uh, some people believe that these three verses really are all tied together. Some say, no, really, they're just kind of each verse by itself with a message. But last time, last week, we looked at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And we said the word to be put away is basically like weighing an anchor. It's lifting up an anchor and getting it out of there or putting, bringing it on board so your ship can sail. So the word here to, to put away is to, is to lift up and to take away. Lift up and put away bitterness. Lift up and put away anger. Lift up and put away wrath. Lift up and put away clamor and evil speaking and anything that in any way would be evil or wicked or bad, the meaning there of malice. And yet God says now, listen, I'm not done with my commands as far as telling you something that you need to do. He gives us these what we call, say, negative commands, but he follows them up in verse 32 with three positive commands. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There are three positive things that we're supposed to do. Now, some people uh, would say, well, I think the negative is most important. I don't know why anybody would ever say that. Somebody else comes along and says, no, I think that the negative is that we should, you know, play that down a bit. And, you know, it's the positive because if you got the positive right, then you won't do the negative. So you get these big arguments about what's most important, the, the negative attitudes or the positive attitudes. And frankly, it's not worth discussing. They're all important. Every command is important. Whether it's on the negative side or the positive side, the negative side, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And then the positive side, do this, do this. They're, they're all the same as far as their importance goes. They all, they all go together. They're all God's plan. They're all God's commands. They're God's will for us. And if we fail there, we, we violate the word of God. Now, some people do believe, especially, and I think many good men believe, that 31 and 32 do go together. And that what God is saying is here, listen, there are some things you need to stop doing. And in the place of these wrongful things, these negative things, if you think about the meaning of the words of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice, I mean, they are really just the opposites of those things that we find on the positive side, verse 32, being kind to one another and being tenderhearted and being forgiving one another. Surely we can see a contrast there in the types of these things, that, that what they are, what they mean. And of course, and if there's a violation, it would be like you can see, well, if you're not this, then obviously you've got a problem with this. If, you, if this is taken care of, then this is not going to be a problem. So there are many that do believe that they tie together. We just simply might want to look at these three things. First of all, he says, and be ye kind one to another. Now, when we think of the word kind today, a kind person, uh, probably two words would come to the surface. We think of a person being uh, gentle. We think of gentleness can be being in kindness, and that is a part of it. 
Uh, sometimes we, we think of the word sweet. Well, she's, she's, she's just so sweet. I don't know if we call guys sweet or not. You know, I don't, wanna, don't call me sweet, please. But anyway, we think of usually we think of the ladies being sweet, you know, and then the guys being gentle and whatever. It's just that, and people, that kind of, yeah, that's kind of what kindness is all about, just being really a sweet or a gentle person. Well, it does include that, but it's really more than that. Because the word kindness, be ye kind one to another. Kindness in, in Greek speaks of, of uh, being gracious, being benevolent, eager to give, being helpful, being useful to someone. That's really all involved in, in kindness. So it's not just this attitude of being gentle and being sweet, so to speak, but there's the, there's the, there's the heart in it that wants to give. There's the heart that wants to meet the needs of the other, and, these, and really that'll tie in with the next one also. But it's being gracious, the meaning of self, being gracious, benevolent, helpful, useful. So we have in our church a benevolent fund. It's kind of a doing good to others fund or helping somebody in need fund. It's a part of our designated giving number 41. Every once in a while somebody will put, a, say, $200 in the offering and say, uh, would you please put this in a benevolent fund? Somebody in our church that, that has a financial need and I just want to make sure there's money there to meet that need. So that money is put in num number 41. And are you, if you get a business meeting tonight, there it is, number 41. That's the, uh, the, the designated giving fund. So the money that's put in there was put in there not to just spend on the lawn or the, or the electricity or something else or pastor's salary. No, the money designated into 41 for benevolent fund means or the, that fund is just like this is what it's for and so when there's the need it's taken out okay so this is the idea of being kind one to another there's a contrast here the contrast between kindness here would be being harsh or being hard uh, bitter rude sour crabby <laughs> sharp we can, I think we can relate to those words. I hope that that doesn't describe any of us or many of us or most of us or some of us even, okay? But that is really the idea when you think of the meaning of kind, being gentle or being sweet, being uh, uh, caring about others, being gracious, benevolent, helpful, useful to someone on the other side. If, they, if that's not you, then probably there's some harshness there. You thought of as being a hard person, a bitter person, rude person, sour, crabby, sharp. And I think you and I know people, the, people are naturally drawn to kind people. That's just the way it is. Uh, people most generally don't like to be around someone who is unkind. I mean, go back to those words I just gave you. I mean, who wants to be around a hard person, a harsh person, a bitter person, a rude person, a sour person, a crabby person, a sharp? You know, that, that's not really, that doesn't attract but the idea of being kind, being kind, be ye kind one to another, kindness attracts. Kindness is appealing. And therefore, by the way, it encourages friendship and fellowship. It's not hard to be a friend and, and to be a close friend. Somebody that you think of as being a kind person, you're naturally drawn to them. It's easy to establish a friendship with a kind person. It's easy to have fellowship with a kind person. Easier to get along with a kind person than a harsh person, a bitter person, a grouch, a crabby person. Obviously, this is, just makes good sense. And by the way, because that is true, it does enhance, it does encourage friendship, fellowship amongst believers, but it also enhances our testimony to unsaved people. 
I cannot remember their names. It was so long ago, but I remember when, when uh, my wife will probably tell me after church tonight, okay, but down there in Florida, when we were in Tampa, Florida, we had a missionary couple in our church. Hey, I remember their last name as I'm talking. Won't, won't give it to you. They were missionaries to, I think it was Jamaica, Bahama, somewhere down there, Nassau, missionaries to Nassau. And I remember when, we, when they came to our church for the first time and he preached. I remember that in his message he said, when my wife and I felt the call of the Lord to go to the Bahamas as missionaries, he said, God put in our heart a burden to be so loving and so kind to those people, whatever they were like, that we would win them to Christ with our kindness. That they would be drawn to us. That they wouldn't repel us. That they wouldn't want to push us away. That they wouldn't want to stay away from us. That they, they wouldn't want to be around us because we were, we were unkind people, but we were missionaries for Jesus. He said, we're going we're gonna to win people to the Lord with kindness. And this is not just, you know, that kind of evangelism that as long as we just do good to people, you know, and help people out and give them things and be, be sweet to them, you know, and so forth, loving people, they're just going to come to Christ. This is not that. But what they said was really, was really true, and it's good. We're going to win people to the Lord by loving them and showing God's graciousness to them, God's kindness to them. Christians, Christians really should be known as the kindest people in all the world. The kindest people, Christians. When you think of Jesus Christ, you don't think of somebody who is harsh. You certainly don't think of somebody who is bitter and crabby and grouchy and hard. Now listen, uh, he did a few things that didn't come across as being real kind, as you know. Like, well, like when he cleansed the temple and you see people running every which way and tables being tipped over and animals uh, running and birds flying and so forth. But see, that, that's, not, that's not being unkind. And, we, and I put a caution in my notes here. Caution, being kind doesn't mean that we cut corners. Being kind doesn't mean that we refuse to take a stand for God's truth. Just to be thought of as being kind. And this is really important. Because it is true and it has been down through church history. That many times men of God, women too, but men especially as evangelists, preachers or professors in Christian schools or in some type of ministry uh, were thought of as being unkind because they proclaimed the truth. They spoke the truth in love, but it didn't matter how loving they were, how gracious they were, how kind they were. Just the fact that they preached something that was not popular, they were thought of as being unkind. They were considered being unloving. Hey, listen, you know, I'm not 22 years old. You know that I'm pretty close to it, of course, but not 22. I've uh, been around for a long time. Been around a lot of godly, godly men. Been around a lot of godly men who've gone to be with the Lord. When I think of some of these men, I'll not mention any names. When I think of some of these men, these well-known preachers, they were not talked about oftentimes or thought about as being kind, gracious men. But I knew those men. I was around many of those men. They were some of the most kind gentlemen you could ever imagine being around. And I got thinking one day, you know, why do people have a hard time with him? Why do people talk so negative, so unkind about him? And I think it was because they were willing to take a stand and proclaim God's truth 
when many, when many men were cut in corners, compromised, and taken the easy way out. I shouldn't, but I will mention just one. I don't worship this man. I love this man. Dr. Bob Jones III, the Chancellor of Bob Jones University, Dr. Bob Jones III is one of the most kind, gracious men I have ever known in my life. But even when we were at school, when he was vice president and then the president, there were people, there were a, plot, a lot of people in our country thought he was a very unkind, harsh, cruel man. And really, I believe it was because of the stand that he took as the president of the school that I was attending. In a day and age in which there were some really big situations in our country that men were arguing about, and men were just, I don't, I don't want to go into details, but it's like, you know, there were some things that were obviously against the scriptures. I mean, I'll give you one example. When you, when you sprinkle holy water on new converts in an evangelistic crusade, I, would you all agree that's really not a good thing to do? And that's what was going on. Huge evangelistic campaigns all around the world, and one big one in Brazil. And I'm speaking at Dr. Billy Graham at that time. And you see pictures of the priest sprinkling holy water on the converts up by the altar, and you're thinking, somebody should say that that's not right. And Dr. Bob III would say, that's a wrong thing to do. When you see their crusade in New York, and you see a, a cardinal and a bishop on the platform, these are Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops on the platform with Billy Graham, and he's complimenting them. Somebody could step up and say, that's against the scriptures, that's wrong. But very few people would take that position. It was an unpopular position. And those who said, that is scripturally wrong. We cannot, we cannot, I read the verse this morning in 2 Corinthians, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You cannot join hands with those that are not proclaiming God's truth and don't believe God's truth and say we're working together for Jesus. You can't do that. And they'd have these big rock concerts before the preaching. And Dr. Bob would say, that's wrong. We, we, we're, not, we're not going there. And so three people say, well, he's an unkind person. He's very unkind. No, he wasn't unkind. If I, if I ever could get with you in private and tell you things that Dr. Bob Jones III just did personally for this undeserving person, you would know why I have a special love for that man. I've seen him do things. He's done things in my life to help me, very personal things. And I'm telling you one thing. There was a gracious kind. There is. He's still alive. He's a gracious, kind believer. But some people don't think of him as being that, and that's a shame. I've been in youth ministries, you know, for many years, been in different churches as youth pastor, and it's been interesting to see young people in a youth group who will gravitate to certain youth leaders. And I've learned through the years that many times teenagers who do not live for Christ, young people in your youth group who have no desire for the Word of God, they have no desire to, to grow in the Lord, they have no desire to pray, we, we, we see no indication that they want to read the word of God, that they always want to live on the, on the edge and, and, and be rebellious and do things wrong and break the rules and so forth. I mean, basically what I'm saying, rebels in the youth group, it's always been interesting to me how they gravitate to certain youth leaders and say, well, I really like her, I really like him because they're just, she's just really so kind. And I'm thinking, you know, the reason that you gravitate to her is because she never corrects you. She never tells you you're wrong. She never says, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. Or I'm sorry, but 
you know, you, you really shouldn't be wearing that because. Or he's not a good friend for you. Or, and the, and the list goes on, and it's like, okay, those leaders, it didn't matter how kind or private they were, when they truly loved young people, and in privacy and kindness, they would correct them, they would counsel them to please live by God's word. Sometimes they were thought of as not being too kind, didn't want to be around them. But the youth leaders who didn't follow the rules, didn't care about enforcing the rules, didn't want to correct anybody, stop anything, they were, they were the kind ones. So you got to be careful here, but God does say to us, be ye kind one to another. And then he says tenderhearted. By the way, one more thought there. Humility is at the very heart of kindness. A kind person is a humble person. They just go hand in hand together. And he says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. What does it mean to be tenderhearted? Again, it, they kind of over, it overlaps a little bit with kindness, but there's a little difference, little difference here, okay? Being tender, the word in the Greek, the word, the word tenderhearted comes from two Greek words. You would never guess what they are, tenderhearted. Two Greek words. The first one is well. You could probably guess that one, well, tenderhearted. Okay, well. The second Greek word is, are you ready? Spleen. Bowels. You like that word, bowels? Real nice term, isn't it? Spleen, bowels, intestines. You say, what? That's the meaning of tenderhearted. Well, spleen, bowels, intestines. You say, where'd that ever come from? Back in Bible time here, Greek culture, people believed that the affections, the emotions, the loves, they all came from our kidneys. They came from our liver. They came from our intestines. Now, what do we say today? I, come on, I love you with, come on, I love you with all my heart. We've heard that. You've said that. Some of you guys said that to seven girls before you actually did love one of them, you know. Don't, let's not go there, please, okay? I should not bring up this topic, as you know, okay? But anyway, you say, I love you with all my heart. You know, I have a heart for you. Well, in, in these times, they would say, I love you with all my liver. Doesn't that sound weird? I, honey, I love you. May, look at this diamond. Isn't it beautiful? I, I want you to know I love you with all my kidneys, and I want you to marry me. It's like, really? But they say, I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my kids. I love you with all my liver. It was, it was the bowels. It was the intestines. And that spoke of, combined with that word, well. Uh, scripture, Genesis 43, don't turn to there, please, but Genesis 43, verse 30. It refers to Joseph, it has to do with Joseph in Egypt. As his brothers came to visit him, <laughs> when they brought in his brother Benjamin, listen to this. It says, Joseph, he says, we're, we're told there, what Genesis 43, 30 says, For his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. When he saw his brother Benjamin coming, his bowels did yearn upon his brother. We would say, what is that all about? He would say, his heart was stirred. His heart was moved. His heart was broken. His heart was thrilled. But it's like, oh, this is my brother, my, my brother Benjamin. No, no, that the Bible says his bowels did yearn upon his brother. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26. That's the passage where Solomon was given the wisdom from God above everyone. And one day, there's these two mothers come to see Solomon. They had a problem. They both had a, a baby boy, remember? And one of the babies died, and the other one was still alive. And so both mothers are saying that the dead baby was hers. 
You know, both of them said, no, this one of this one says, you know, no, this, this is both of them said, this, this is my, this is my baby. The baby that's alive is mine. Now listen, you and I know one of them's telling the truth and one's not telling the truth. Amen? Who's supposed to know? You know what Solomon says? Well, it's, we can take care of that. It's no problem. Who know? Who know? Raise your hand. What did Solomon say to do? Somebody. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. You know that story already, huh? That's good. Is that your favorite Bible story? No, okay. Uh, he said, Solomon says, no problem. We can take care of this. Bring me a knife. We'll just cut the baby in half. And we'll give half of the baby to mother number one, half the baby to number two. Number two. Now, the lady whose baby's dead, the mother whose baby's dead, what does she say? <laughs> Great idea. I like that. I can vote for that. Let's go. Now, the mother who knows that that is her baby that is alive, what does she say? No, 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 no. No, don't do that. Just give the baby to her. And Solomon says, I know who the real mother is here. Take him home. What does the Bible say? Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Her bowels yearned upon her for her son. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. They both have the phrase, both of these verses have the phrase, bowels of mercy. Not a heart of mercy, bowels of mercy. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Why don't you just go to one with me? Go to the uh, epistle of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, verses 16 and 17. And you know, in First John, we have many verses that, are, that speak of assurance of salvation, birthmarks of a Christian, traits of a true believer. There are at least five in First John. I've preached on this probably 30 years ago now, a long time ago, shortly after I got here, the five birthmarks of a believer in 1 John, because the gospel of John was written primarily to tell us how to be saved, and the gospel of the epistle of 1 John was written to show people who are saved how they can know they're saved, how they can have assured salvation, and one of them is loving for Christian brothers, loving others, verse 16 and 17. Hereby know we, or hereby perceive we. Here's how we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We want to know if God loves us? Does he really love us? Okay, how do you know? This is how we perceive the love that God has for us, because he laid down his life for us. And then he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his, here it is, bowels of compassion. How dwelleth the love of God in him? And the answer is, it doesn't. It's all through the book of 1 John. It's not godlike. It's not godly. It's not a, you can, it's not a, a, a mark of a, a person in whom God's spirit really does live. We, we see somebody in need, but we, we shut up our bowels of compassion. Bowels of compassion. Tenderheartedness, 
is basically having, in, in, in the New Testament now, the tender hardness is really, it's, if there's one word that is linked with more than anything else or that it means the same, it's really basically compassion. We would think of it as love, but it's really compassion. Having a, a compassionate heart for others. Not being hard-hearted. Not having no heart at all. Not living with a, a, what we call a, a no-care attitude. You know, acting like you don't see others that have a need. And if you do notice, then you don't care. It's like, well, maybe somebody else will help them. Maybe they won't. But, hey, listen, they probably deserve that they, they really need that. You know, and they're sure not worth my time. They're not worth me putting any money into and the inconvenience and so forth. But I'd have to go through. Don't really think so. So you kind of just turn your head the other way and, and walk on. Like, you know, if they get help, they're going to have to get it from somebody else. Just a, a hard-heartedness. A lack of compassion. No, it's loving somebody with all of your heart or loving them with your intestines, if you please. But it is a, and it's not just an emotional thing. We know that. A love, true love, true compassion is more than just being emotional about something. We don't have time to go there tonight, but we could read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see the picture of love there and see that it, it does include some things about emotion, but it's not just about emotion. So God says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. And thirdly, he says, forgiving one another. Now, it's the, when a person is tenderhearted, it's the compassion, it's the love that is behind the kindness. And when there is kindness, and then when there is tenderheartedness, it will naturally follow that there will also be a forgiving spirit. And so God says, be ye kind one to another. Be tenderhearted, which comes from that kindness. And then he says, be forgiving one another, because that comes when you are kind, when you are tenderhearted, it becomes easy to forgive. But God says, be, be forgiving one another. And he says, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Just the fact that God would tell us to forgive one another must tell us that sometimes Christians can have a problem with each other. You know, Christians aren't perfect people. A Christian can say something to another Christian that they really shouldn't say. A Christian can do something to another Christian that they should never do. And therefore, they, their, their fellowship is hurt. Their friendship is hurt. There's a barrier there. There's a problem there. There's a wall there. And it's going to be there until they do what God says, and that is go seek forgiveness. It's going to be there until the person then forgives the person who comes seeking forgiveness. But Christians can have a problem getting along. I think one of the saddest things is that Christians just can't seem to understand why this Bible can take care of any problem that we have. And I don't like mentioning people's names, but I'm going to mention one tonight. I thank God for Lonnie Lowry. Lonnie Lowry, as you know, is a member of our church for a long time. Lonnie and Karen were good people, folks. I miss them very much. And Lonnie Lowry used to come and talk to me, and he'd say, Pastor, I just don't understand why that family would leave our church. I don't understand why that man would leave our church. I have no idea why that woman would leave this church because of their problem with so-and-so or so-and-so or this or whatever else he'd say. Do we not have in the Bible God's direction for not only how to be saved but how to, how to live as Christians and love others and forgive? 
He said, this makes no sense to me. I don't understand why people just can't take the same Bible that told them how to be saved, to get in the family of God and have brothers and sisters in Christ, why they can't take that same Bible and have all the instruction they need to work out any problem they're having getting along. And I used to hear him say that, and I'd have tears in my eyes thinking, I wish to God every person had that attitude. That is a wonderful biblical attitude. Just taking the word of God and saying it is sufficient to solve whatever difference, whatever problem we're facing. Listen, we don't have to have this irritated and walk away from each other. Why can't we work it out with the scriptures as our guidebook? I thank God for that. The word forgiving here does not mean, it's not the usual word. There are two different Greek words for forgive. Two, maybe more, but there's at least two. This is not the usual word for forgiveness. The usual word forgiveness means to send off or to send away. We know, we've, you, you've probably heard that, to, to forgive us, to send off or to send away. God forgives our sins. He sends off our sins. He sends away our sins. How far? He's as far as the east is from the west. This is really not that word here in the Greek. It's a different word. The word here is the word keromitsomai. Have you ever heard that word, keromitsomai? It comes from the word charis. You ever heard about the charismatic movement? I'm not tying it in with forgiveness here, but it's, it comes from that same word, charis. Charis, this is keritsomai. It means grace. It means gift. It means benefit. It means favor. And that is very important to understand this verse. That's the main thing. I want to focus on two main things and we're done tonight. First of all, kiritsomai, grace. It's all about forgiveness here. Dr. Weiss and Kenneth, uh, Kenneth, Dr. Kenneth Weiss and, and Weiss uh, books, uh, studies in the Greek New Testament. Listen to what he says about this verse. This is Dr. Weiss' definition and explanation of this word, charizomai, uh, forgive. We should forgive one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. He says, Dr. Weiss says, to do a favor to, to do something agreeable or pleasant to one. To show oneself gracious. I underline that because that's the key. Grace is that word charis, to show oneself gracious. So once again, what does it mean to forgive? And this word, to do a favor for, to do something agreeable or pleasant to one, to show oneself gracious, to be benevolent, to forgive in the sense of treating the offending party graciously. There's that word grace again, or graciously. So what's he saying? How do you summarize this? The forgiveness that God has in mind here when he says to us, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The forgiveness that is being spoken of here is not, is not just saying, okay, I forgive you. It's not a verbal thing. It can include the verbal thing, but the focus is not on the words, I forgive you. Would you agree with me? It is not hard to say these three words. In fact, let's say them together, okay? I forgive you. Let's do that. Now look at anybody in this auditorium, person, maybe the person who's sitting right next to you. The person right now, you have no problem. Now if you have a problem, you're going to find this pretty hard. You might want to turn your head and look the other way and try this and say, okay, but I just pick anybody, anybody you're sitting around and look them straight in the face and just say three words, say, I forgive you. And then that person says to you, I forgive you. Come on, let's try it. I'm, I'm close to Bonnie, so let's go. I forgive you. Come on, let's do this. I forgive you. Hey, listen, my wife just said, I forgive you. That's nice. I just said, I forgive you. You said that to somebody, they said it to you. It's not hard to say, I forgive you. Anybody, you can talk, you can say those three words. And when somebody has wronged you, when somebody's offended you, 
Whatever prompts you, whatever motivates you, whether good motivation or bad motivation, it is not hard to say to somebody, okay, I forgive you. And maybe even say it with a smile. I would hope that you'd at least look at them when you say it. Maybe you feel so badly, truly you can't even look them in the face. You just have to look down, but you just say, I forgive you. And you don't have to say, if somebody comes to you and their, their head's down, they say, listen, I, I just have something I want to tell you. I know I did this last week and it's bothered me so much. I, 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 just, just, I just ask you to forgive me. You know, don't look at them and say, well, now look up and tell me that. Look in my face and tell me that, you know. And if they ask you that and, you, and, and, and you're, maybe you're so stunned, you're so surprised, your heart is so broken that you can't even look at them and say, well, I, I accept your apology, I forgive you. So you look down, so you look down and say, listen, hey, it's no problem, it's over, okay, I forgive you. Then don't you say, well, look in my face and tell me that. Okay, so it's not the idea, where are your eyes? I'm just saying it is not hard to say verbally, I forgive you. But I think a lot of times people who say, I forgive you, they really don't mean it for whatever reason. They just say it. And then they go on their way, and there's no indication that there was ever a change of attitude, a change of heart. And that is what this verse is all about. It is not just saying, look, I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. But it's the gracious spirit. It's the gracious attitude, attitude that truly does forgive and is determined by the grace of God, they will forget it in such a way that they will never have a, a negative attitude about that person again regarding that particular thing. It's like it's gone. I, I can't forget that it happened. I know, I know I will want to get it out of my mind. It won't be out of my mind for a while. It may never be out of my mind. But I want it to be. And I forgave. But then it's that now showing the graciousness, the favor, there's the closeness, there's the friendship, there's the doing things with or doing things for that follows that, that really show, hey, listen, even if they never even said it verbally, it's obvious they're forgiven. God says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven. And you know, and God doesn't just tell us in the Bible he forgives us. Think of all of the things. You ever just sat down and tried to make a list of all the things Jesus Christ does for us since he forgave us? We know he forgave us. Look what he does for us. And then finally, in closing, look at this. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Dr. Alford says, here is the greatest argument from God's example that we ought to resemble. Would you turn, please, to Matthew chapter 18? Because there is no way that I can preach this verse, and especially this phrase, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There is no way that I can think about that verse without thinking about something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Here's the supreme example, the supreme illustration of the forgiveness that we should emulate, then that's God himself. That we are so appreciative, we are so thankful, we are so overwhelmed with a sense of we do not deserve God's forgiveness. But God in his love and God in his grace and God in his mercy, he forgives us. So if God would do that and he forgives us so much so that we're not going to hell. 
We're not going to scream in hell forever. We're not going to be tortured in hell forever and ever because God in his mercy is being so long-suffering. He chose to willingly forgive us and we don't deserve it. And if that's true, and it is true, then why in the world can't we forgive anybody for anything? Does that make sense if it does say amen? Why? I mean, who are we anyway? That we could be forgiven by God for so much that when somebody wrongs us, we say, I never forgive him. Nobody should ever expect me to forgive her for that. Never be the same. Can't do that. Are you serious? Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, got a question for you. How often shall my brother sin against me? I mean, really, literally, sin against me? Does me wrong. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. And he's really being gracious for that. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's adding a few numbers to what the, what the law said. What was clearly understood at that time, he said, should, should I do it even till like seven times I can forgive the same person for the same wrong up till seven times? Jesus said unto him, oh, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. So together, please, 70 times seven equals 490 times. You know what Jesus is saying here? It's not a matter of, okay, you're counting when you're writing them down. And now you're at 320, now you're at 365, now you're at 419, now you're at, you know, 480, got a few more here. If you hit that magic 490, done. Now if they sin one more time, that's it. I've obeyed the word of God. That is not the message here. The idea here is you just don't keep count. You don't keep count. No, not until seven times, until 70 times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Mega bucks, 10,000 talents. But as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Look at this, please. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, Lord, can't you see him? Can't you see him there? Can't you just see him kneeling down? He's weeping. He can't even look in his face. He says, Lord, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. What's the Lord going to do with that? The Lord of that servant. Look at this. He was moved with compassion, and he loosed him and forgave him the debt. You got to pay this money. You're going to prison, and you're not. You're not getting out. Your whole family's going to prison until you, you take care of this. He says, "Oh Lord, forgive me, please forgive me. Have compassion upon me. I'll, I'll pay you all." The Lord was moved with compassion. He loosed him. He forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out. Now watch this now, boys and girls. Please look this way or look at your Bible. Please don't be goofing off, okay? Boys and girls, come on now. Don't distract others. Don't distract the preacher, okay? Don't do that, please, okay? But now the same, this says, but the same servant 
went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him how much, folks? Not 10,000 talents now. I mean, this is microscopic. He owed him 100 pence. What did he do? He laid his hands on him. He took him by the throat saying, pay me what thou owest. And his servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, now listen to what he says. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Just about word for word what he said. He owes 10,000 talents and he says those words and, and the master says, you're forgiven, you're free. Grabs one of his servants, takes him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe me here, these 100 pence. The man says, oh, he falls down. He says, have patience with me. I will pay thee all. How sad, he would not. He would not, but he went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and they came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that, he had called him, said unto him, Oh, thou wicked servant. Now watch this. I forgave thee all the debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? Now here's the phrase. Even as I had pity on thee. What's the obvious expected answer? Of course, yes. Bow your, bow, bow your heads, please. Close your Bibles, would you? There, there is no better explanation of what our text means than right there. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, even just like, in the same manner as, God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. If God, a holy, perfect God who doesn't have a single flaw, if he would graciously, mercifully forgive us of all of our sins, what a shame. How sad, in fact, how wicked, how wrong, how evil, how terrible that there would be anybody who would ever sin against us. And we would say, there's no way I can forgive. I will not. We can see how wrong that is when you think of this story that Jesus gave to illustrate true forgiveness. So we should be forgiving one another just like even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Father, we pray tonight that you will help us to obey these three commands, to be just as serious as obey, about obeying these as the five negative commands. Both are necessary. They're all important. And I pray tonight that we might truly ask people here in this church that we might in thy sight and therefore in the sight of others. Father, that we might be kind. That we might be tender-hearted, truly compassionate. We might be eager and willing to forgive anyone who seeks forgiveness, who's wronged us. Just like you've forgiven us for which we are so thankful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for just a moment, please? Would you pray tonight, would you pray to our Father about the message that you've heard? About just those three things, how you doing with being kind? How tender-hearted are you tonight? 
How about this thing of forgiveness? As our pianist plays a verse of a song, it's our invitation to you to do something about what you've heard. So let's, let's just pray silently, and then we'll close. And I'll just step down here in the front like I always do, and if anybody says, Pastor, I just want to come and say something or ask you something, or would you have prayer with me? I'd be very happy to do that, okay? Just before we're seated tonight, let's just sing a verse together, Amazing Grace. Could we sing the first verse? And by the way, you know we're going to have our annual business meeting tonight. You don't have to be a member to stay for our annual business meeting. If you're visiting with us and you want to step out, you're welcome to. We'll sing a song and, and let you slip out. But I, you are invited to come. It'll not be a long meeting. It'll be a good meeting. And I think if you stay, uh, you will be glad you did. But we are going to have a business meeting. But let's just sing together a verse of Amazing Grace together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Twas blind. But now I see. Be seated, if you will, this evening. Constitution says that we should have an annual business meeting at the beginning of the new year. We wanted to have it before tonight. All of you know why we didn't. So what I need to do, first of all, is ask if anybody here, please, somebody make a motion that we would declare our church to be in session for our annual business meeting. We'll ask someone to second that, and we will go from there.